This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we have a treat for you, folks. I know many of you are going to be familiar with our guest. It's uh, Michael Bungay Stainer. Uh, he's most well known for the coaching habit, and I love the subtitle Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. Now, my favorite book, if anyone was wondering, is his book <laughs> called The Advice Trap. I love the subtitle Be Humble, Stay Curious and change the way you lead forever. But the book that we're going to talk about today is his newest book, How to Work with Almost Anyone. And in healthcare, when we're dealing with this complex socio-technical system, we need to learn how to work with almost anyone. First and foremost, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And tell us a little bit about you and your background. Sure, Skip, and Jake, thanks for having me on the show. So I am Australian. I'm actually coming to you from Australia at the moment. It's very early o'clock, but making the connection. But I normally live in Toronto. How did I get from here to there? Well, I uh, grew up in Canberra, Australia's national capital, happy childhood. Uh, went to university there where I did uh, literature and law. Um, was good at literature, was pretty terrible at law. Um, finished my law degree being sued by one of my law professors for defamation. So that really wasn't working well, but managed to escape by winning a Rhodes Scholarship, which took me to Oxford, where I wasn't a lawyer, which was the big win, and also met my wife, who's Canadian. Um, so when I finally staggered out of uh, university after not quite as long as a medical <laughs> journey, but long enough, um, I worked in the world of innovation and creativity. So amongst other great triumphs, I helped play a very small role in inventing stuffed crust pizza for Pizza Hut and also a single malt whiskey that has been called the worst single malt whiskey ever invented. So when that wasn't going so well, I got into the world of organizational change and how do, how do, you, how do organizations evolve and grow and how do you help people flourish in there? Part of that journey took me to Boston, where we lived for a while, not least because my wife is a huge Boston Bruins fan. And then about 20 years ago, we moved to Canada. We set up the, my company called Box of Crayons, which is a learning and development company. And now what I do is I write books that try and help people kind of manage people in a way that's a little bit more human so that they can stay a little more curious. And I've written eight or nine books, but the ones that kind of live together in this conversation are The Coaching Habit, The Advice Trap, and How to Work with Almost Anyone. Well, you know, I, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Um, I, I love the title, How to Work with with Almost Anyone. <laughs> um, you, you don't you don't promise that we're going to be able to work with everybody, but no. um, yes. Yeah, so it's hard, to work with, hard enough yeah. to work with the people you, you, you like, let alone the people that you may not like that much. And uh, I have to say, of all the books I've come up with, this is the title that people love the most because everybody goes, it's, it's, all, it's the almost that somehow makes that title a little bit magical. Yeah. So, I mean, in healthcare, we we don't often get to choose our teams. Um, but we work in a lot of teams. You know, you could be a surgeon in the OR, you know, as yeah. – um, you know, a lot of scrub techs could be, you know, interns like myself on, on the floor with, um, you know, numerous nurses and 
all other sorts of ancillary departments, other physicians as well that, you know, I'm not doing the hiring for any of them really. Yeah. Um, other than, you know, maybe if I had a, a nurse practitioner, that would be somebody I would directly hire. But most of the time we are not um, hiring the people that or we don't get to choose who we're working right. with. And so we do have to learn um, to work with almost anybody. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it can be a challenge sometimes. So um, sure. what what was your inspiration for writing the book and, and what and I, I assume I know what you're trying to do with it. You're trying to tell us how to work with almost anyone. But what was your inspiration for writing it? Well, I think it kind of comes from three different areas. The first is just an ongoing appreciation around how much my happiness and success depends on my working relationships with other people. Because when I've had really good working relationships, I felt smarter. I felt better. I felt more energized. I felt I've, I've thought better. I've done better. I've come home happier in the evening. And when I've had really miserable working relationships, of which I've had more than or I've had my share, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I shrink. I'm smaller. I'm more timid. I'm less courageous. I, less, I contribute less. And I come home and I need a glass of wine every night just to kind of like null, dumb, you know, uh, remove the pain a little bit. So it really makes a difference to our quality of work. It's not a... Uh, I would be just nice. It's like a central part as to whether you feel happy and whether you feel successful in your work. The second element was I had been practicing for many years um, this central idea to the book, which is, can we have a conversation about how we work together before we plunge into the what work needs to be done? And that sounds obvious, but it's really rare because the work is always noisy and loud and urgent and critical and uh, and there so most of the time when you start working with somebody you're like what are we working on what problem do we need to solve how do we fix it and i've just seen through 30 years the mo taking a moment to say hey before we get into the work how should you and i bring out the best in each other how should we avoid the worst in each other how are we going to work best together to solve the problem just creates relationships that have more safety, more courage, and more repairability as well. And then the third really personal reason this came from came um, from a couple of years ago. My dad was dying. He was living at home. He uh, he almost died in the emergency room, but somehow bounced back from that. And we came home. We knew he had a terminal lung disease, and. Um, my parents had had a really successful 56-year-old, 56-year marriage. But for all the reasons that you probably know far better than I do, it was a, it was a pretty stressful time. Like dad is stuck in a bed. Mum is being the, the primary caregiver. I'm living at home trying to help out as well. And they were kind of sniping at each other a little bit. They were They were both under stress and it wasn't terrible, but knowing how memory works, I really didn't want this to be mum's last memory of the last six months with, with dad. So <laughs> I grit my teeth because this wasn't, I wasn't looking forward to this particularly. I suggested they have a conversation about how they be with each other in the last six months before dad died. Because all the conversations have been about hospital beds and medicine and managing oxygen tanks and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, but mom and dad, how do you want to be with each other? What does this mean? And that felt like a really significant contribution to the happiness of the final 
weeks and months of my dad's life. And so knowing that I tested the idea here in, in a situation like that just felt like it was an important thing to write about. No, no, those, that, that is great. Um, so in the book, um, you, you lay out five questions for, uh, you know, to ask in order to, to work with almost anybody. Yeah. Um, can you take us through the questions? Yeah, let, let, me, let me explain the context for why you'd be getting into a conversation involving these questions. The goal is with the key people with whom you work, not every single person in the world, but the key people with whom you work, to build the best possible relationship. And that phrase is important because it doesn't say that you're going to build this magical, perfect, wonderful, glorious re working relationship with everybody because that's you know unrealistic. But every working relationship you have has potential. So you're trying to fulfill the potential, best possible relationship. And that is a relationship that is safe, but not only safe, but vital, so meaning alive, so psychological safety and psychological bravery, and also repairable, because all the research says that if you have a relationship where you fix where it get, when it gets torn, it becomes a better working relationship. And the key idea is that you have a keystone conversation, a conversation about how you work together, not what you're working on. And these five questions can be helpful for doing that. So let me go through some of those with you, Jake. The first one is called the amplify question. And the amplify question is, so what's your best? And there you're asking people to tell, look, when you light up, when you shine, when you flow, when you're in the very best version of you, what does that look like? Because it's really, if I'm working with you, Jake, it's like, it's really helpful for me to know. It's like, when are you at your best? <laughs> when do I get to see you kind of operating at the very optimum version of who you are? And I want you to know what's true about me as well. Because if we both know that, we've both got a chance of actually figuring it out and trying to make that happen. And one of the things that does is it teases apart the difference between what are you good at and what are you fulfilled by? Because one of the things that happens in our lives is we assume that because people are good at it, they're fulfilled by it. And you know internally that that's not true for you. There's a bunch of things, Jake, for instance, you're good at. And you'd be thinking to yourself, if I never have to do that again, I'd be totally fine <laughs> with that. Exactly. Um, but we always make the mistake of thinking and assuming that because other people are good at, they should do the thing. The second question is the more mechanical it's the um, steady question. What are your practices and what are your preferences? Because we've all developed kind of ways of wanting to work and kind of habits. And it's just really helpful to know what those are so you don't step on each other's toes. I mean, this is a very small example just from my own working experience. But, you know, my assistant and I use a, a program called Asana to track projects and to track tasks. And... 20 years ago, I worked with a guy called David Allen who wrote a book called Getting Things Done, or Get Things Done, which is like the, one of the first real productivity books. And he taught me that you should start every to-do with a verb because, you know, you're doing something. So you need a verb so you can know what the action is you're doing it. And I get unreasonably irritated when I get assigned a task that doesn't have a verb on it. <laughs> so I, uh, I talked to Claudine and I'm like, I know this is weird, but if you're going to give me a task, make sure that there's a doing word right at the start of it. So I know what the doing is. And it's this little things that help the relationship, not just kind of get bumpy. The third and the fourth question are the good date and the bad date question. Here's the insight. 
your your patterns from your past, your working patterns, repeat again in the future. So it's really helpful to be able to explain to somebody, let me tell you the good working relationships and what happened. And let me tell you the bad working relationships and what happened. So you can do more of the good stuff and you can do less of the bad stuff. And then the fifth and final question is, how will we fix it when things go wrong? It's the repair question. And the power in that question, Jake, is it actually acknowledges that the relationship will go wrong. It will go off the path. There will be moments of disagreement or misunderstanding or upset or confusion. And there's a look, how do we how do we get back together so we're working as best we can? And part of the power of that question is a as with all the questions, it gives permission to keep checking in on the working health of the relationship. And B, it gives permission to say, Jake, this is it's gone off the rails a bit for me. Can we can we fix this? That is great. That's a great framework. And we can dive into maybe each of the individual questions. But before we do that, um, you said Jake, you're actually, not... I want to can I interrupt because I'm curious about which of those actually feel useful for you in the context of your working relationship? I know I know this feels useful theoretically for people because theoretically people nod along to this, but I'm curious to know in your busy medical life, what rings true in this for you? I mean, the one that I really liked is, was the first one, the, the amplify question. Um, what are you doing when you're at your best? I think that's a great one um, that we can have. And it's a it's an approachable one too. Um, you know, some of these, like I, you mentioned doing this for for only the key people you worked with, which makes sense. But you know, sometimes my bad relationships are are not necessarily the ones I work with most yeah. often. Um, they're they're the ones that I occasionally interact with, but when I do, it's not pleasant. Mm. Um, and then you know maybe I would even try to avoid those interactions, and so I wouldn't necessarily think to have these conversations with with those individuals. Um, yeah. But you know, would you see this as something that you know um, somebody could have with their their boss, their superior, and bring it up, or is this more for the boss to initiate these sorts of uh, yeah. discussions? Well. That's kind of why the title is how to work with almost anyone is you're at a you're always at a choice as to like is it worth it or is it not you know every choice has prizes and punishments upsides and downsides and whether you're looking up or whether you're looking laterally or whether you're looking down there's upsides and downsides to always having that conversation so I think for some people who are thinking. Michael, if you've ever met my boss, you'd know I should never have this conversation with my boss. And I'm like, fine, um, that might be some of your almost people. But I know that as a boss myself, if somebody came to me and said, can we have a conversation about how we work together so it works really well for you? I would be thrilled by that conversation because it would signal uh, an intention and a commitment and an and and ambition that would be yeah. really quite exciting for me. And it can also be for people who, um, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking, Jake, and let me try this out for, with you. You know, as a doctor, one of the things that happens is you have status in the relationship. When you come into the room and you're talking to me as a patient, I'm like, you're the authority figure. Something that a doctor has never asked me is, 
how do you like to work with doctors? When you've worked with doctors before, and it's been a good experience, what happened? <laughs> because I can, t- I can tell you the good experiences and I can tell you the bad experiences. And in three minutes, I can tell you how to make me a happier patient, more engaged, more willing to listen, more l- less likely to resist, more yeah. willing to understand, more, more, more able to calm down my panicking amygdala which is which makes it hard for me to even hear what you're telling me because i'm stressed because i'm in a doctor patient conversation and um and that type of because the as a as a medical professional my guess is you're always wired to go right great we've got to talk about the thing (laughs) i'm here to talk to you about and there's no there's no moment to say hey just before we jump in and you've had a really good medical conversation before what happened because i'd like to make it a really good medical conversation with you no no that's a great point i haven't thought about this in the context of the physician patient relationship i was thinking more but you know y'all are working together we are working together technically um on you know trying to that's right an issue And, and i've certainly had patients that suggest their preferences like some just are don't really want to take medications, whereas some and, and would love to try, you know, alternative interventions, lifestyle modifications, where some yeah. always want the pill. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's great if they can tell you up front their preference yeah. so that um, you know how to work with them. Um, and the, the one other thing I'd, I'd add on to your question, Jake, was you asked about, you know, some of the harder working relationships you have. I, I know that those feel like the harder ones to go and have or try and set this conversation up with. But I do think if you look at your five most challenging working relationships and if three of them could become 20 percent better, you know, less unworkable, less broken, more bearable, more workable. Um, that feels like that would be a big win for lots of people. I mean, John Gottman, one of the writers in the space, says 70 percent of issues in relationships are perpetual. They're not solvable. And what I love about that is, A, it means you can stop trying to solve the 70%, but it also means that there's 30% there to improve and change. Um, And that includes not just the great ones where you want to make them even better, but the ones that are really hard. And you're like, how do I make this suck less? So I can, I can, so we can both get through the working together in a way that's less painful for both of us. Yeah. Let's explore the, the, physician-patient relationship, working relationship a little mm. bit more, because I, I think you can have some good insight there. We've we've all had the patients that are just very difficult to have. They're maybe yeah. incredibly demanding. The word non-compliant is, is used a lot, but not a lot yeah. of people, uh, um, it's not really a great term because there's lots of reasons why the patient may or may not be doing what they're uh, wanting to do. But mm. um, approaching that you know, suppose I have a patient that is on my schedule for the day and yeah. I just see it the day before and I am dreading seeing that patient because I know it's going to be mentally yeah. and physically exhausted when I see that patient. Yeah. Um, what sort of lessons can we learn from your book about how to approach that uh, interaction? Well, it feels like at the heart of what, how you're describing a tough patient relationship is their resistance. They're like, whatever you're doing, I'm pushing back against that. 
and there's all sorts of ways that you can push back verbally and non-verbally and all sorts of ways but it feels like you're coming with authority i'm resisting your authority one of the um and that's a really natural human reaction to change you know it's like homeostasis people don't like change systems don't like change you push into a system a system pushes back one of the one of the kind of jujitsu moves uh, around change is to stop pushing and ask them to figure it out themselves and of course this is, i know this is this is like people are going yeah but michael in practice <laughs> and so if you've got a tough working relationship um i would i would wonder the curiosity of asking them about some of those questions so if you think of those questions again jake what you know what are, what do you like at your best um how do you like to work tell me about a good working relationship tell me about a bad working relationship tell me how we repair it when we when it goes wrong do any of those feel like they might be helpful to ask and answer in a conversation with a resisting patient yeah i mean i certainly think that the first one again um what does it look like when you're at your best yeah. and maybe not in those exact words but you yeah. know what is and you know what what makes you feel the healthiest um you yeah. know that sort of approach could could be an interesting way to go about it um yeah. I, i'd be it, curious about ahead. the third and the fourth questions which is like you know bob or let's call him skip hey skip i'm nice to see you again you know before we jump into the conversation about the thing that we're here to talk about um you know i'm really keen for this to be as good as possible for you um and i just want to ask when you know in terms of when you've had a good medical relationship and you've worked with a doctor and it's actually felt pretty good for you i'm curious to know what what did they do and what did you do that really made that work so well for you um and and let me tell you for me what it means for, to have a really great patient so you know what i'm hoping for as well i mean there's part of the the value of this is it's asked and answered it's an exchange of information somebody one word for this is a social contract and a contract is an exchange of information and then you go and and skip when you've when you've been really frustrated with working with medical professionals and they've kind of driven you nuts <laughs> what happened what did you do what did they do that was hard for you around that let me let me tell you for me some of the frustrations i sometimes have with patients around that and um as with every patient you like you decide how much you share to, that's helpful but that conversation might be disarming for them and it says to them look i'm trying to build a relation working relationship with you i'm not trying to do something to you and there's a way that in that moment you're you're not pushing into them so they resist you're going i'm curious to know what would make you less less likely to resist and i know that there's always this pressure of time you're like man do we have time for that i've got i've got other people to talk to other places to get to around that but sometimes that investment of a 5 minute conversation up front means that you visit that patient less you have to keep coming back and solving that problem less often because you've invested in that relationship up front now it it will not always work um you know there's a whole bunch of patients you're like I'm not even going to tell you that cuz I'm not interested but if half of those tough patients 
have some of that conversation and reduce their resistance by 30%, that feels like it's going to have a good ripple down the down the line. But that's my hypothesis, Jake. I don't know. How does that land with you? Yeah, I know. I certainly think it would be interesting. Um, you know, it, yeah, I, I think it could potentially work. Um, and, and in some cases, we may even need to, to do the repair question, um, right. which you know, never thought about doing with, with regards to a patient and really hadn't thought about it doing with the, with regards to a, a colleague or, or, or somebody else at work either. But um, um, talk to me about that question in particular. When would you um, use it? And, uh, you know, have you yeah. have you done it in practice and, and what does it look like? Yeah. The thing about working relationships um, is that they are they are mostly self-healing, you know, because you screw up, but you're really urgent and there's a whole bunch of other things to doing and you're still on that working with that person for the next six months. So you kind of dip and then you get back to some sort of level. But we mostly carry some scars. We mostly get a little dented or a little bent or a little cracked. It doesn't quite get back to being as good as it used to be. And there's a way that checking in and repairing a relationship often makes the relationship stronger, in part because you've both shown a commitment to say, hey, let's fix this. Let's, let's not just swallow it down and pretend it didn't happen. Let's actually make sure and check in with each other around that. So it's a moment of caring for the human and also caring for the relationship around that. So you might have had that conversation around, hey, how will we fix it when things go wrong? But there's just something about being the person who's willing to 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 reach out, who's willing to check in on the repair side. And I think there's probably there are kind of three things you can do um, that that help with the repair. One is to to name it and own it if you've been hurt. You know, so often we get damaged by you know, inadvertently or, or deliberately by somebody and we kind of swallow it down going, this is mine to endure and carry on and, you know, be noble and stoic about it. Um, the second is to be the person who kind of checks in and goes, hey, are we OK? Hey, I, I noticed something, Jake. Is, this, is there anything I, is there any, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't been said between you and me? Because I'm just think I'm just feeling something might be a little off. Um, and the third is to know how to apologize in a way that's less about a can we just can I just say sorry and we move on and more about uh, can I say sorry in a way that is about repairing the relationship and, and, and making the relationship continuous. So if you're if you're starting to, to work with somebody like when I start working with people, Jake, I've just been doing it long enough that I can actually tell people how I will screw up. I'm like, let me tell you the mistakes I keep, the, the lessons that it's really hard for me to learn and I, I will probably do this. Um, so when I do this, how, how do we best prepare it? How do we best fix it when I, when I screw up? And that feels like a really powerful act of vulnerability and leadership. And it doesn't feel like it's giving too much away for me. Like I'm like, I still trust, I'm still an expert. I'm still good at what I do, but I will screw this up in some way. Um, and that ability to keep coming back and repairing and just uh, making small adjustments allows my working relationships to last longer, be healthier and, and make me happier as well.
Michael, one of the one of the principles that make up our Baptist management system, which is our improvement system, is lead with humility. Mm-hmm. And when I think of this fifth question, I keep thinking of that principle because you can feel the awkwardness that the question would have, right? Yeah. But in that awkwardness, you're asking, so are we okay here? Or or you know, we're approaching with uh, you know, listen, I want to talk about what happened last week. You know, yeah. I mean, I have to be I have to have some level of humility to approach that situation because it doesn't it doesn't just go away on its its own. That's right. Um, and you know, for me, humility, you know, the etymology of the word humility is kind of groundedness. And I, I feel like humility, the confident humility is when you're both aware of your strengths and the area of your, your blind spots and your weaknesses. So when I'm when I'm being humble, I'm not abasing myself. I'm not saying I'm a, I'm a I'm you know a, a lesser person. I'm just like, look, I'm a complex, messy human being. <laughs> this doesn't abnegate my strengths, but this is where I screwed up. So you know, can can I be in that position of of apologizing or just checking in with you and kind of going or just saying I'm brave enough to tell you that what you said actually kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. I'll tell you why I think this book, for many reasons, is so important. You know, my old coach, and I know someone you're very familiar with, Dr. Edgar Schein, he would always make the statement to me. He would say, Skip, life is a series of conversations, and everything happens through conversations and relationships. Yeah. And if healthcare is the most complex socio-technical system where as the patient's flowing through healthcare, you have different disciplines, uh, you know, basically – handing off information in addition to handing off the patient. Those relationships are just so important. Mm. I love that question about, you know, what what do you look like at your best? Because now I'm revealing something about myself and I'm getting to learn something about you, which I think is so rewarding. Well, listen, even though, Michael, I know that we're coming (laughs) uh, near the end and I hope that you'll come back to uh, talk to us by far about the favorite book of yours that I love, The Advice oh. Trap. I, I do want to ask you kind of a last ditch question because I feel like I'm catching you. You're going through the airport. You're trying to catch your plane. And I just got one more question. Sure. Uh, in healthcare, and I'm sure this is true in many industries, there is a common practice that everybody is referred to as a coach. Mm. And uh, whether you're a director, a manager, a CEO, or anyone in between, yeah. but the reality is, coaching is a is a science and an art that people have labored over for decades. Um, with in a respectful way, for folks out there that may be thinking about that, maybe they use the word coach in a generic sense. Yeah. Um, how would you respond to that? I don't. I, I don't worry too much about people who are coaches and who like, I wish everybody else would stop being called a coach because I'm the coach around here. I am more interested in people, you know, like Jake, for instance, it's like, look, Jake doesn't want to be called a coach. He's an internal physician. <laughs> That's what he's spent 85 years training for. I don't want that label and that additional job role kind of put on my shoulders. So 
for for many people, it's actually demotivating and, and not that exciting to be called a coach because they're like, okay, I am a marketer, I'm a salesperson, I'm a physician, I'm a surgeon, I'm a nurse. I'm not. I didn't train to be a coach. Don't make me a coach. But what I want people to be um, is more coach-like. So now it moves from being a job to being a behavior. And the behavior for me is is, is as simple and as difficult as this. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? It's, it's not never give advice because obviously that's ridiculous. But, um, you know, physicians often, there's a famous study about how quickly a general practitioner interrupts their patient. It's like 17 seconds or something before they get interrupted. And I've always felt that that was unfair to physicians because it's true just for everybody. <laughs> everybody gets interrupted 17 seconds into the conversation. Um, so I I want Jake and surgeons and nurses to be more coach-like, be curious longer, because that act of curiosity, a question or two or three, means that when your advice comes, it comes in a more useful way, in a way that can be better heard and will often be solving the, the right problem. Um, but I'm, I want them to be, I don't really want, I, I mean, I'm kind of like excited if they're not called coaches and they get to do their own thing. In part, I'll say one last thing, Skip. It's like, if I tell you, hey, Skip, I'm going to coach you now, that often actually sets up a bit of a defensive reaction for people. They're like, I don't want to be coached. You're my doctor. Why are you coaching me? Um, and for me, it's like trying to get kids to eat spinach. Like you blend it into the spaghetti sauce so they don't realize it's happening. Because you're, what you're doing is you're just being curious and you're just asking questions. So I'm trying to, in an attempt to unweird coaching, one of the things I'm trying to do is is remove have coach be used less often rather than more often as a, a label. That's a fantastic answer. Well, Michael, thank you so much. I really hope that we'll be able to get you back for many of your books. But once again, I've been very clear that the advice <laughs> trap, I think I enjoyed it <laughs> yeah, so much like because I, I think I discovered, as you refer to it in the book, I have... I have an advice trap monster inside of me, yeah, and uh, and I and I want to avoid that. But uh, thank you so much, Michael. I know you're getting Pleasure. up early for us in Australia, and just thank you so much for spending time with us today, and thank you so much for the amazing work that you do. We really, really appreciate you. Thanks, Skip, and nice to meet you, Jake. Thanks for the great questions. I appreciate the, the conversation. Thank you, Michael. Have a great day.